1: To find out if it's right for you,
2: this podcast contains violence, adult themes, and material that may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is strongly advised.
3: True North True Crime is produced on the traditional territories of the Coast Salish people.
4: And it continues to be a priority for the Winnipeg Police Service 36 years later, which is pretty sad, really, that Irene Pearson is now, she's dead 36 years, and she's dead longer than she was alive. We need to know who was in that house and, and the reason for them being in that house, and then we can certainly know that they had a valid reason to have been there, and we can move on from those people then if we identify who they are.
3: In the early morning hours of November 16, 1979, the body of a woman was found on the floor of a display home in Winnipeg, Manitoba. The 31-year-old realtor had been cornered in a basement and brutally attacked. Her death was quickly ruled a murder, but that would be the only thing quick about this case. Days turned into months, into years, and then to decades with the murderer evading identification and prosecution. For over 40 years, the person who committed this crime has lived their life as a free person while the victim's memory faded from the headlines. But in 2020, a retired police officer began to look into the case in his spare time and what he uncovered brought the victim's name back into focus. Tonight, we present the unsolved murder of Irene Pearson, and this is True North True Crime.
2: everyone, and welcome back to True North True Crime, or if it's your first time listening, welcome, and thanks for joining us.
3: Now, before we get started tonight, we want to send a big thank you and a huge shout out to activist, writer, and fellow podcaster Jen Green. Jen produces the Go Smudge Yourself podcast. Each week, Jen's podcast chats and educates on topics like reconciliation, Land Back, Idle No More 2.0, and how to be a good ally to Indigenous people. We hope you'll check out the Ghost Mud Yourself podcast, available on Apple Podcasts and probably wherever you find podcasts. I recently listened to the episode on Indigenous leadership, and I found it super helpful and educational. So thanks for the coffees, Jen, and for supporting True North True Crime since we started.
2: We have some more folks we need to shout out for donating coffees for tonight's episode. So we'd like to take a moment to say thank you to Shonda and Jet. I believe the last episode we may have called you Jeff, so we wanted to correct that. Also, a big thanks to Pammy Sunshine, Noriel, Paul H., Priscilla, Cindy, Alyssa M., and Kirsten. If you would like to donate a coffee for an upcoming episode, you can do so by going to buymeacoffee.com slash tntcpod. True North True Crime is an independent Canadian podcast that brings awareness to missing people, victims of violent crime, and criminal court cases that affect our communities. We are a two-person team with the goal of boosting these stories. We wanna let you know that we do prioritize cases that come to us from family
3: members or close contacts. So if your family member, friend, or loved one is struggling to get attention for a missing or murdered person, please reach out to us. There are many ways that you can participate if you don't want to be on mic or interviewed. Feel free to reach out at TrueNorth TrueCrime at gmail.com. Okay, let's get into tonight's episode.
2: Tonight we are talking about the unsolved murder of Irene Pearson. Irene was 31 years old and was working as a realtor in the city of Winnipeg, Manitoba. Irene was found murdered in the basement of a show home on November 16, 1979. This case is not only a historic Canadian murder, but it remains unsolved to this day and has been considered a cold case for many years. In order to put this episode
3: together, we used publicly available news articles as well as archived media from the Winnipeg Free Press. We also spoke to retired Winnipeg Police Service detective Andrew Mikuljevsky. Some of you may remember that Andrew wrote the book about the Stoppel murder and its links with Terry Arnold. He was also instrumental in freeing the wrongly convicted Thomas Sofenau. We covered Barbara Stoppel's murder in episodes 20 and 21 of the podcast. Andrew's book was the source material for those episodes, and we highly recommend that you check it out. Andrew did not work on the Irene Pearson file, but he does have knowledge of the case and has made contact with a man who he believes is the main suspect. Andrew has been a great help with some other cases that we've worked on or that we have looked at, and we are super grateful for his insights.
2: So as we mentioned this case takes place in Winnipeg. Winnipeg is the capital city of the eastern prairie province of Manitoba. The province of Manitoba is situated east of Saskatchewan and west of Ontario. To its north sits the arctic province of Nunavut and to its south it shares a border with North Dakota and Minnesota. In the late 70s Winnipeg had a population of about 500,000 people This was actually a pretty new development because Winnipeg had recently amalgamated with surrounding regions to create a larger city. This created a massive population bump from around 200,000 to over 500,000. In a lot of ways, Winnipeg was seen as a city on a big growth trajectory. In
3: episode 37, we covered the murder of Geraldine Satie. We spoke a little bit about the various neighborhoods of Winnipeg. These neighborhoods were pretty idyllic for raising a family and settling down.
2: In 1979, Irene Pearson was 31 years old. Her roommate describes her as a beautiful, dynamic, charismatic, and attractive person. Physically, Irene was a very attractive and stylish woman. She had light colored eyes and long blonde hair parted in the middle. In photos, her outfits were always trendy and well put together. She had all of the outward appearances of a young urban professional. Irene was the adopted daughter of Winnipeg police officer George Gray Smith, who passed away in 1971. Irene was a dog lover, with a particular leaning towards German shepherds. Around 1978, Irene divorced her husband, Alan.
3: Alan then left Manitoba and moved to British Columbia. According to some reports, Irene was on the dating scene in Winnipeg. However, it was reported that in November of 1979, that Irene was dating a man named Lawrence. Lawrence was a superintendent with the city of Winnipeg. In an article in the Winnipeg Free Press, Lawrence claims to have been in love with Irene for over two years. So it's kind of unclear here how that reconciles with the report of her divorce only being a year old, or that she was on the dating scene. Keep in mind with this particular episode, some of the articles and reports around this case are over 40 years old. So just to clarify here, Irene was divorced. Her husband was in another province in 1979, but Irene was dating Lawrence and also possibly seeing other people.
2: So Irene worked as a realtor, working with Castlewood Homes. By all accounts, she loved her job and was great with her clients. As Winnipeg was rapidly expanding, several housing developments and subdivisions were popping up around the city and its suburbs. Castlewood Homes was managing a development in an area known as Tyndall Park. As part of the deal with the developer, Castlewood Homes was required to staff the display home with an agent. This display home also doubled as a kind of office for realtors to work with potential buyers. Clients would meet the realtor at the display home and then be taken around the neighborhood to look at the available inventory of homes. The display home would also be used for paperwork and as a place for the realtors to take their breaks and relax between appointments. At the display home, there were also walk-ins, often folks who are just looky-loos with time on their hands who like looking at the new builds. In the weeks leading up to Irene's death, there had been some issues at the display homes around Winnipeg.
3: The week that Irene was murdered, several real estate agents had complained of being harassed while working alone in display homes. In fact, six different women working as realtors had reported inappropriate behavior from men who stopped into the display homes. The men made derogatory and suggestive comments. One realtor actually phoned the police to report that a man had suggested that they go upstairs into a display house bedroom to, quote, "...try out the bedrooms." Another realtor went on record and stated, We're going to figure out what to do. Everybody's terrified. It's tough to get anyone to work in a display home. Men aren't even comfortable working there by themselves. Castlewood Homes vowed to address the problem and they added that topic to their weekly meeting on November 16th. However, that meeting would never happen because that morning the real estate industry in Winnipeg would learn that 31-year-old Irene Pearson was found dead in the basement of a display home.
2: In the weeks leading up to the murder of Irene Pearson, she had been receiving harassing phone calls. In the 70s and 80s, it was easy for people to just randomly call a stranger or someone they knew without the person knowing who was calling. There was no such thing as caller ID or GPS. Phone call tracing was cumbersome and expensive, and it was only initiated by the police. So the average person would basically record the phone call on a cassette tape, or possibly a mini cassette from their answering machine. And that's exactly what Irene did. She recorded several phone calls from a caller with a man's voice that she did not recognize. It was possible that it was being disguised with a cloth or by using a different style of voice.
3: On November 14th, 1979, Irene received and recorded the following phone call.
2: I don't understand what you're saying. I said you're not a very nice person. Oh, I'll be nice to you. Why? After you've threatened me and everything? Want to get together? Oh, I'm not too thrilled about that, thanks. You should be. Why? I've got over nine inches. Do you really get off on calling me up and giving me dirty phone calls? I'd like to get off on you. Are you through now? No, I'm not through. What else do you want to talk about then? We're going to run into each other. What? We're going to run into each other. You think so? Yeah. So the call ends there. It's clear that Irene is doing her best to keep the creepy guy on the phone in hopes that he identifies himself. But he did not. And to this day, it's not entirely clear who that man was. Irene spoke to a friend afterwards and stated that she felt scared to go to the display home office on her own. She even suggested that she wanted to bring her two German shepherds with her for protection. On the afternoon of Thursday, November 15th, 1979, Irene Pearson made her way to the display home in Tyndall Park. She was scheduled to work there from 1pm to 9pm. Irene decided not to take her dogs with her that day, Instead she went about her business as usual and tried to put the threatening phone call out of her mind.
3: The display home that she used as an office was located at number 3 Cropo Bay, right on the corner of Cropo Bay and Kinver Avenue. In fact, the front door of the house is actually on Kinver Avenue with a side yard that extends along Cropo Bay. Irene arrived at the display home and made herself comfortable. She turned on the TV, tucked her purse into the side table beside the couch, and tossed a package of cigarettes onto the coffee table. Irene kept herself busy that day with prospective clients and new homeowners. The sun would have set that day around 4.45 p.m. The temperature hovered around zero degrees with just trace amounts of snow in the
2: air. At some point, Irene left a handwritten note on the front of the display home. It read, Be back in 19 minutes. Some witnesses have come forward to state that they saw Irene and a man inside another display home on Cropo Bay. This was around 6.30 p.m. Other witnesses stated that they saw Irene walking down the street with a man towards another display home located at 114 Kinver Avenue.
3: Linda Semenchuk and her husband, who had bought a house in the subdivision just two weeks earlier arrived at the display home office to have a meeting with Irene at 7.05 p.m. Irene was supposed to be there that day to hand over the keys to their new home so that they could take measurements and eventually put up some drapes. When they arrived at the display home, they saw the sign, Be Back in 19 Minutes. They looked inside the windows of the display home, and seeing that no one was there, they left. They returned at 8.30 p.m. and noticed the sign was still on the door be back in 19 minutes they opened the door which was unlocked and entered the home linda Semenchuk states when we came back the sign was still on the door all of the doors were unlocked so we went in the tv was on and her purse was underneath the end table by the window but there was still nobody there we figured she was just in the neighborhood somewhere but we couldn't find her so we left Linda tried calling the display home later that evening and did not get an answer. She also states that no one answered her calls to the display home at any time after 4 p.m. on November 15th.
2: Another real estate agent working in the area also dropped by the home with a potential client, saw the note, and waited until about 8.20 p.m. before leaving. Robert Polak, a resident of the subdivision, had a clear view from his home to the show home office, he stated, I knew something was funny, because the lights were on all night, and her car was there all night too. At around eight thirty AM on Friday, November sixteenth, a maintenance worker who worked for Castlewood Homes entered the home at one fourteen Kinver Avenue. He made his way to the basement, which was still under construction. Lying on the floor, was the body of Irene Pearson. Her skull had been crushed from being beaten repeatedly with a blunt object. She had also been stabbed 31 times.
3: We want to be clear here that Irene was not found in the Cropo Bay office display home. She was found in the basement of a different home at 114 Kindver Avenue. This home was just 120 meters away, or a one-minute walk. Police would describe the murder as overkill, going on to say that whoever did this was in a frenzied rage and couldn't stop stabbing Irene. It seemed personal. Irene was found fully clothed and there were no signs of sexual assault or a sexual motive to the crime. Irene's cause of death was brain damage along with severe lacerations to her heart and lungs.
2: The investigation into Irene's murder moved swiftly. Officers descended onto the house on Kinver Avenue. The home was cordoned off and officers could be seen examining tire tracks and footprints. No weapons were found at the crime scene, however, detectives did find one clue. A broken silver religious chain or necklace. This chain with a cross pendant was an inexpensive piece of jewelry that police believe was sold by the now defunct Consumers Distributing Company. Police stated it is possible that she pulled it off the suspect's neck during a brief struggle.
3: Some witnesses did come forward to report what they saw that night. Irene was seen alive at about 6.30 p.m. that night by two neighborhood youths who saw her in a show home. At about 6.40 p.m., the owners of the home next to 114 Kinver Avenue heard the door next door open and close as if someone had entered the house they heard the door open and close again around seven ten p.m., but they did not hear any sounds of a struggle or a fight next door. Based on the contents of Irene's note, the witnesses who put Irene in the show home around 6.30, the sound of the door opening and closing on 114 Kinver Avenue, and the missed appointment at 7 p.m., it is believed that Irene was killed at or near 7 p.m.,
2: Witnesses also saw a man getting into a car at 7.40 p.m. They believe that he was seen with Irene earlier that evening walking to display homes. Initially, he was described as a white man around 50 years old, about 5 foot 10 inches tall and 200 pounds. He was reportedly wearing a tan spring or winter trench coat and a beige soft Swiss style hat. However, this has changed to be a white man between 22 and 30, with average height and build, with possibly a mustache. The suspect was seen getting into a red, gray, or blue car. It was possibly manufactured by Plymouth or Dodge, and could have been an Aspen or Valari hardtop with opera-style rear windows.
3: The investigators quickly established a theory, that Irene must have known her attacker or felt safe with him. He was either someone she had previously met or had spoken to a few times. It is believed that he was posing as a home buyer. There was another oddity that had occurred. The home that Irene was found in was no longer for sale. It had been purchased two weeks earlier. So perhaps she was just showing him the floor plan, or perhaps the person convinced her to let him see the already sold house as he knew they would be completely alone once inside. Some DNA was reportedly found at the scene, but sadly, proven DNA technology would be decades away from the early investigation.
2: So the police focused on understanding Irene and who she associated with. What they discovered was that she had been enjoying the nightlife and wasn't in a completely monogamous relationship. In fact, she had been dating several men, including Winnipeg police officers, and what the newspapers referred to as high rollers. As we stated earlier, Irene's ex-husband was no longer living in Manitoba. He had moved to British Columbia. The police looked closely at Lawrence, the man she was currently dating, but he was out of town when the murder occurred. Over the years, leads would dry up. The Winnipeg Police Service would make multiple pleas for witnesses and information. New task forces would be formed, press releases made, witnesses re-interviewed. Despite their best efforts, Irene's murder would remain a cold case to this day.
3: We are now going to take a quick break. When we return, we will speak with retired Winnipeg Police Detective Andrew Mikojewski about what he has uncovered and what the main suspect has to say. Mm -hmm.
2: And we are back. So before the break, we outlined the events and investigations surrounding the murder of Irene Pearson, a cold case that has remained unsolved for over 40 years. We spoke with retired police detective Andrew Mikulievsky about Irene's case. Andrew did not work on this case at all and was not involved in this investigation in any way. However, he did manage to make contact with a man who was believed to be the main suspect in this case. And what the man has revealed is quite shocking. Here is Andrew with a little bit of his bio for our listeners.
4: Well, I was, I joined the Winnipeg Police Service back in uh, 1986, uh, after completing my master's degree in sociology and working a year in uh, federal corrections. Um, I worked for the police for 28 years and retired uh, almost eight years ago. I was, um, uh, because one of the bigger cases I was involved in was the um, uh, uh, investigation of uh, the murder of Barbara Stoppel that happened back in 1981 and uh, was assigned to review the case back in 1999. And uh, lo and behold, we basically, within two hours, learned and discovered that uh, Tom Sofano was not guilty and that the real killer had been very busy for 19 years.
3: And of course the killer he is talking about is suspected serial murderer Terry Arnold. So we asked Andrew how he originally became familiar with the Irene Pearson file and what brought him to this case again in his retirement. Basically the same way any 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 um normal civilian would have been
4: uh, back in the the murder uh, occurred back in 1979 you know seven years before I became a policeman and like any other investigation you can use an iceberg as an analogy I heard basically everything the uh, the uh, news media was going to be submitted and uh, I you got basically the tip of the iceberg that uh, she was a real estate agent that was murdered in a show home and uh, you know very very little else until when I got onto the job back in 1986, and I heard rumors floating around um, about the case and uh, who may have done it. It came across very, actually, innocently enough. Um, my mother, uh, who was uh, battling cancer, and I were just talking on the phone. She was back still in Winnipeg, and uh, we were just talking about the Pearson case. And uh, she, uh, she mentioned that uh, Irene uh, went to the same church as her. I believe that would be St. Ignatius. And I filled her in with some of the information I had about the case and she asked me like uh, to go ahead and pursue it and see if I could somehow solve it. But she did say don't get yourself in trouble because of all the uh, calamity that I uh, uncovered in the sophomore case. It was on on the desk of John Virchel back in the year 2000. We discussed it a little bit and once again he came up with the name of the prime suspect who was, which was consistent with what the rumors were ever since I got on the job in 86. So, I had an idea who the prime suspect was and some of the reasons why the police believed it was this person. Later on though, I also learned from several sources that the cold case unit uh, was working on the file actively and uh, once again they
2: were in the belief the same suspect was involved. So Andrew was familiar with this file, but on a whim and at the request of his mother, chose to take another look at this case. Before we get into the main suspect, we asked Andrew what he believes happened that night.
4: In order for me to do that, I would have to have access to the file, which I don't have. However, I mean, like I say, I only got a glimpse of what could have happened. And uh, I I, I agree with what the uh, police have said and the media have reported that she probably knew her attacker because the crime was extremely violent. Um... It's been reported that I think she was stabbed 31 times. The killer, whoever it was, did not want her alive. Uh, is that for a reason of identification? Uh, probably. But it was very, very personal. There, there was a necklace left at the crime scene that did not belong to her. And to this date, I don't believe police have ever found out who owns that necklace, but it would be presumed that it may belong to the killer.
3: Over the years, there was a man who was rumored to be the main suspect. He reportedly was a car salesman in the midst of selling Irene a car. He admitted to knowing her and even speaking with her on the day that she died. In the summer of 2020, Andrew made the choice to reach out to this man and ask him about his involvement in this case. And where did Andrew find the man? Well, on LinkedIn, of course.
4: Well, it, it, like I say it was innocent enough. Um, I, I had learned that for some reason... Um, there was a person who was in charge of the cold case unit It was named uh, Roger Penner. And uh, I received information from several sources, that former and current members of the Winnipeg Police Service, that the homicide unit or somebody in the executive had taken away the file from Roger Penner and given it back to homicide, which I found to be ridiculous because I think we were having one of the highest, um, highest rates of homicide that year. So how could they have time to follow it up? Anyway, several months went by, and uh, I put the feelers out again to see if anybody was working on it or if anything had been done, and apparently there hadn't. so I decided that I would contact mister uh the prime suspect via LinkedIn. I knew that when if you go into LinkedIn and you actually enter one someone's site, they can tell if that you've been in their site and I sent him a message asking him to read my book uh the book that I in, in reference to was the murder of Barbagale Stoppel. Uh the book is called Stoppel and um I just wanted to start a connection with him. Well immediately he uh, he contacted me uh was back on july twenty seventh, uh, twenty twenty. Um uh, and uh he replied right away saying, First, who are you and why do you want me for that book? And I basically just said I and he also was very curious why I'd con- contacted him and searched him on LinkedIn Um, and without any solicitation he replied maybe you should do a story on Irene Pearson I believe I was the second last person to talk with her before her murder and I think I the killer worked with me at the car dealership and those are the exact type words that I have here so he volunteered the information that he became a suspect in the murder investigation
2: so the man admits to being one of the last people to see Irene. Now, you may at first be confused by the I the killer text message. So were we. We asked Andrew to clarify this.
4: Yeah, and it's not my broken English. Yeah. It's, his, it's his typing. Yeah. <laughs> it was uh, maybe do a story on Irene Pearson. I believe I was the second last person to talk with her before her murder. And I think I the killer worked with me at a car dealership. I mean i that got me right away too so I, I had everything in bold here in front of me and i have i the killer in red because it came out well i draw my it drew my attention to it
3: so what happened next was a series of text messages on linkedin in which andrew built a rapport with the suspect
4: well we continued our texts. um I, I i sent him a message back uh, Irene Person's murder, uh, this is my words now, Irene Person's murder would be a short story that unfortunately stretched over four decades. She went to my mother's church. Before my mother died, she asked me to look into it. You want to read Stoppel to get some background on me? So I, I let him know that I was interested in looking into, the, in, into Irene's murder and the reason why. And so I sent that message to him and. Uh, we subsequently kept on going back and forth, and he desperately wanted me to give him my to to phone him, but I didn't want to do that right away because I didn't want to interfere in the investigation. I just wanted to catch base with him to see where it was going to go, and it went a lot further. Um, I said I might get a hold of him, and at any rate, uh, let's see. I sent him a message trying to get his confidence and why he was interested in it, I said that in, in any murder case, three key pursuits should be pursued. Number one is justice for the victim. Number two is closure for victims' family. And number three, making the truth public. And I also, I said that I honestly don't think after 41 years that either number one or number two will ever be reached, which leaves us with just discovering the truth. I know you were interviewed in this case, as were others. I would like to review your recollection of events from the week of the murder, including three to... Dirt, Three to four days afterwards, most importantly, I would like you to describe in detail every police encounter you went through. By eliminating everyone around the case, the true killer will appear. And uh, then I, I wanted to put him off a bit because I did not want to give him a phone call yet because, I, as I said, I only knew the tip of the iceberg. And if you're going to do any kind of investigation, especially a homicide you have to know everything about the victim, you have to know everything about the crime, and you have to know everything about your suspect. And I didn't have much on any, any of those. On July 31st, I received another unsolicited message from from this suspect. And he said, this murder may be worth looking into. So he sent me uh, Medicine Hat News uh, information, Uh, from the website, from a website, I guess, and it was regarding a murder of Hazel Lloyd in 1994. And he also sent me links to stories covering the murder from CBC, Medicine Hat News, YouTube, and the Calgary Herald. And he said that he is a suspect. So now I've got two murders that he says he was a suspect for.
2: So while asking the man about the Irene Pearson case, he also admits to being questioned about the unsolved murder of Hazel Lloyd. But the story didn't end there. Apparently, there was more the main suspect wanted to talk about.
4: The next incident happened. Um, I think this was on August the 5th. I sent him a message. I wanted to just ploy with him here a little bit, uh, saying that uh, I, cause I really didn't want to talk about the, the second murder he told me about because I didn't know anything about it. And I said, it doesn't appear to be much of a story. Elderly woman dies in a fire. Winnipeg has 26 murders now, heading for another record. So I just wanted to solicitate a com- uh, conversation with him. And he says, okay. Uh, the, the issue he says he had, he says he had three strokes, and it's tough for me to type because I wanted him to type the entire incident out for me, so I didn't have so I didn't have to talk to him, and I could t- decipher the information afterwards. But he claimed that he had three strokes and had a hard time writing. Uh, then, on the next correspondence we had, I said, uh, "Oh." Yeah, I wanted to play with him a little bit more. so like I got him telling me about two separate murders unsolicited, so I figured uh, on the twelfth of August, I sent him another message. I said, "Okay, out of curiosity, are there any more murders you think I might be interested in?" And he responded at four thirty three in the afternoon. LOL, I did do a polygraph for one in nineteen ninety eight or ninety nine. I can even rem- I can even remember who the victim was. I think that should have, I should have, I might have typed that wrong. I said, I can't even remember who the victim was. And I just replied to him, well, if I had a polygraph relating to a murder, I'd remember the victim's name. And all he could say about what he recollected about it was the fact that they found the body of a young lady in the river in St. Charles. I don't even think they told me her name. Now, I did records on cold cases that year, and I believe that person would have been a young uh, indigenous girl by the name of Tanya Marsden.
3: So the man admits to being questioned in relation to not one, not two, but three different unsolved homicides in Canada. We asked Andrew what the odds were of an average Canadian being interviewed in relation to three different murders. Well, pretty slim. I mean, the the last person
4: I I, I spoke with that... um, had been interviewed for several different murders, actually committed those murders, and his name was Terry Arnold, and uh, he was the one who murdered Barbara Gail Stoffel back in 1981. The odds of being interviewed on three separate murders is incredibly outrageous.
2: So we know that the suspect was interviewed multiple times in relation to the murder of Irene Pearson. Not only that, but he was also interviewed in relation to two other unsolved homicides, We asked Andrew if he knew of any other evidence that existed that may tie the man to the murder of Irene.
4: Well, the main suspect worked at a car dealership in Winnipeg, not very far away from the murder scene, and may have had access to a vehicle uh, that was seen uh, shortly on the day of the murder. So apparently two young boys on bikes were riding by and actually saw this vehicle, um in the area of the the home where she was found, her body was found. Well, he knew her. He admits knowing her. And I believe he was in the process of selling her a vehicle. So there was a connection between the two. They knew each other. Uh, With regards to um, uh, him being involved in the case, I do know that he was interviewed shortly after the murder. And he himself has said that the police seized a knife that he had. Apparently there was blood on a knife that he had. What happened to that knife, I don't know. But I would presume, this
3: being a historic homicide, that Winnipeg police would still have it. At this point, we need to keep in mind that Andrew is a retired police officer. He had no power in this case. But Andrew knew that Winnipeg Police Service was doing media pleas asking for information in the Irene Pearson case. So... He did what he had to do. He reached out to the police in Medicine Hat, where the man was living, and what happened next was an unexpected chain of events.
4: Well, for me, like I, as I say, I, I didn't have enough information on him, didn't have enough information on the case, uh, but I did believe that this suspect presented himself as a classic psychopath with narcissistic tendencies. And I didn't know uh, where I was going to go with this, but I decided to contact Medicine Hat Police. I, I knew a person that, that used to work on our shift that was uh, retired, or didn't retire, quit Winnipeg and went to Medicine Hat, contacted him, he became a staff sergeant. Unfortunately for me, he had just retired. But he referred me to somebody who took over the cold case unit, which I took the name down and I sent them basically an entire report on everything that I had learned, including the fact that, that the prime suspect not only wanted to talk to me about the murder and murders. But he wanted me. He wanted me to tape record the call. I just figured this would be a, an excellent opportunity to assist Medicine Hat and possibly Winnipeg with these cases. So something that happened started off so innocently suddenly fell apart as well. I mean, I, I waited for for weeks for Medicine Hat to get back to me, uh, but they didn't reply. The next thing I knew, however, was uh, the members of the homicide unit in Winnipeg raced off to Medicine Hat with an arrest warrant for the prime suspect. At that time, they took him into the station, I'm not sure where, I guess Medicine Hat, uh, for an interview. Um, the prime suspect claimed that he was interrogated at length for several hours, and uh, he also indicated that uh, he was put on a polygraph. And He claims that the police said that he failed the polygraph, but he was released anyway for Crown Opinion. And that was in September of 2020, just weeks after I initiated these conversations and forwarded my my report to the Medicine Hat Police. My presumption, and I can't prove this, is that Medicine Hat contacted Winnipeg. Winnipeg uh, blew a gasket and sent their investigators out to interview the suspect.
2: So as you just heard, Andrew contacted Medicine Hat Police Service and suddenly Winnipeg sends out detectives to interview the man again. He is allegedly given a polygraph that he potentially failed. We asked Andrew what happened next.
4: That's something I don't know because uh, that's where the whole case ended. Uh, the Free Press uh, did a story on the case and everything. I, well, they even interviewed the prime suspect who related that he was a suspect in the murder of Irene Pearson and that uh, he had been arrested on this occasion in, in, in 2020 and released. But what I found was very odd, though, is just reviewing before our our conversation we're having right now, just looking on the Internet, I looked up the facts on on Irene Pearson's murder and the continuous media release by the Winnipeg Police to see if there's more information out there, including one from CTV News saying, Winnipeg Police plea with witnesses to come forward in a historical homicide case, that being Pearson. That's in 2016. Um, However, I find it odd that... Myself, being a civilian now, had information. I have a person uh, that I'm uh, contacting and who's in dialogue with um, who happens to be the prime suspect in not one but three murders, and nobody ever came to interview me. I found that very odd that yet they're pleading, for, they're begging for information from the public on any information that can help in their investigation. And they know that I. I'm in conversation with him and that I'm ready to speak with him on a taped line and yet instead of investigators coming out to find out what I know or allowing me to go this way, I was contacted by a member of the Internal Affairs Unit, also known now as Professional Standards Unit, asking me if uh, how I found out the information that he was a suspect and where I got the information. So their primary... From what I get, the Winnipeg police were more interested in finding out an information leak than they were having information on the murder, which I found very odd.
3: And just like that, the trail went cold again. The man was released. Two articles were written about the man in the Winnipeg Free Press in September of 2020. And then he went back to life as usual in Medicine Hat. We asked Andrew where things went wrong with this leg of the investigation— and what will have to happen to move this investigation forward?
4: Uh, well, there are several things that I would have done before going to see him, and I would have hoped that they have done it. I hope they would have done it, but I can't tell, because I, I have had no access to the file. But it certainly seemed like, a you know, after 40-some-odd years, I go and make contact with the prime suspect. He implicates himself or starts talking about him being a suspect in three separate murders. Few weeks later, Winnipeg police finally, after well, at that time it was 41 years, rushed off to Medicine Hat to interview him, even though his name has been sitting there as a prime suspect for years. Well, you, I think we had mentioned earlier what, what direction I think this is going to go on. I mean, because of the length of time, much like other historic homicides, it becomes a confession case where time, witnesses, uh, evidence possibly going missing; uh, it became it becomes so tainted over the years that a confession may be the only resolution in the case. Failing that, it may be unsolved forever.
2: We thought it would help our listeners to understand the process that investigators go through with historic cases. Andrew was part of the task force that freed Thomas Sofinow, who was wrongly convicted in the murder of Barbara Stoppel. Andrew explained a little about that process.
4: Um, well, I was uh, temporarily assigned to the homicide unit during the course of the Sofno investigation and uh, murder of Barbara Stoppel. There was no cold case back then. They initiated a cold case unit, I think, one or two, a couple of years after we left th- that unit. Um, what we did, and this is, this is uh, <sighs> very enlightening, is I we were assigned to it in 1999. The murder happened... In, in 1981, so you're looking 18, 19 years after the fact. Um, Tom Sofano had been pleading for his, his innocence during all this entire time, and they refused to look into the case. We, lo- we started, well, what we did is we sat down and started looking at the file, and to be quite honest, within two hours, we knew that Tom Sofano was innocent and that the real killer had been raping and murdering women and children across Canada for the last 19 years. All it took was reading the report. It's, it's almost like, it, for, for the Sofano case anyway, it's almost as if everyone had a piece of the report and no one decided to read it all together. During, during our reinvestigation, we asked the Crown, uh, Crown Attorney, we asked uh, officers involved, detectives, and every, each and every one of them only had a piece of the information. It seemed like nobody decided to sit down and read the entire file. If I were to give you the file, and you, I would be amazed if you, yourself, even if you had no police background, you should be able to find out who the killer was within two hours. Well, The, the frustrating part for me is in the case of Irene Pearson, I just have a little tip of the iceberg that I know about. And then I dug a little bit deeper and I found out a lot more. In the case of Barbara Stoppel, I'm not bragging, I, I know absolutely everything about the case, and yet still, the Winnipeg police service seemed to hold back. And by that I mean, when the inquiry happened and Tom Soffin was exonerated, all they had to do was say, at least say sorry and mean it. Instead, they said, sorry, uh, and by the way, new information came to light that we didn't have back then, and that's why we exonerated you. And that's a complete lie. There was no new information that came to light, It was, unless reading was invented in 1999. It was all there, but the embarrassment and self-preservation of the service is paramount, at times.
3: So, sometimes everything needed to solve a cold case is sitting right there in the original files. We see this often when cold cases are solved. But the real problem is having enough evidence to secure a conviction. We can often know very clearly who committed the murder. But meeting the threshold for a charge from Crown or proving it beyond a reasonable doubt to a jury or judge is an entirely different thing.
2: Many leads have come and gone over the years. In 1993, a free press investigation reported police connections to the case, stating Irene had dated at least two men who ended up joining the Winnipeg Police Service. One of the officers who responded to the scene the day she was found deceased had been a high school boyfriend of Irene. And another man she dated was a junior homicide detective. In
3: 1981, Irene's boyfriend, Lawrence, was undergoing chemotherapy. He said that during a spiritual workshop he attended that Irene came to him as a spirit guide. He said that her spirit was the stimulus that kept him alive and helped him to make something of the limited years he had left. Lawrence was also cleared of any connection to Irene's murder.
2: Cold cases are tragic. They affect so many people. They frustrate the public. They confound investigators. It is so easy to play Monday morning quarterback on these cases and point out the flaws with the investigations. An investigation in 1979 is nothing like an investigation in 2022.
3: The fact is that good detectives want to solve these cases. They want to solve them to bring peace to the surviving family members. They want to solve them for the memory of the victim, so that the victims aren't just forgotten. Andrew left us with some poignant parting words. Yeah, it's it's very frustrating. I
4: mean, I just wrote down a few things that... uh uh, some of the murders of that are still hanging around there like Geraldine, Geraldine Sethe back in 1970 52 years ago Irene Pearson 43 years ago even Barb 41 years ago I mean it's uh, to have that burden uh, hanging around it, it's it's very very hard on the family many of whom I've talked to uh, and just remember uh, a book I, I read back in university uh, it, Professor John Hogarth wrote a book called Sentencing as a Human uh, Process, and where he basically says that uh, uh, sentencing is a human process and as such it's subject to all the frailties of the human mind. Well, policing is also the same thing. It's also subject to all the frailties of the human mind. And we, we made mistakes, but the, the, the big issue is coming forward and coming clean. And in this case, Viren Pearson, uh, I'll borrow from John Hogarth again, where he said that in order for the justice system to be seen as just... It must be, number one, evidently swift, and it must be evidently certain. And it has been neither in this case.
2: Evidently swift and evidently certain.
3: Irene Pearson was murdered on the evening of November 15, 1979, and she was just 31 years old. Without a confession or compelling new evidence, this case may never be solved.
2: We would like to thank Andrew for helping us with this episode and for the work he continues to do for Canadian families. It's very clear that what he uncovered in the summer of 2020 led investigators to continue to look into this case. We are very grateful to have Andrew as a friend of the podcast. Thank you all for joining us on this episode of True North True Crime.
3: Our producers on the podcast are Vicki W., L.A., Barbara B., Colleen, Giraffe3000, Melanie E., Sean D., Alberta B., Carolyn M., Kelly D., Jimmy H., Shandy, Jessa, Sarah B.W., Louise Rickshaw, Lisa Marie, Thomas E., Maureen, and Jesse D.R. You'll hear from us again soon with another episode, so until then, stay safe, everyone.
2: Stay safe.